when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special edition of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have a special guest, John Dinger the deputy prosecuting attorney for Ada County in Boise, Idaho, where he supervises the Child Abuse and Sexual Assault Unit. He's a graduate of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, where he was an editor at the Utah Law Review. He also holds degrees in political science and history from the University of Utah. He is published in the Utah Law Review, the Idaho Law Review, the Journal of Mormon History, and the John Whitmer Historical Journal. His book, The Nauvoo High Council and City Council Minutes, won the Best Documentary Book Award from the Mormon History Association and the Best Book Award from the John Whitmer Historical Association. And in 2013, he published Significant Textual Changes in the Book of Mormon, the first printed edition compared to the manuscripts and to the subsequent major LDS English printed editions. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us like about your background? Did you grow up here in Idaho and have you always aspired to become a prosecuting attorney? So I've been in Idaho twice. I lived here when I was really young, went to kindergarten here, and then my parents made the terrible decision to leave Idaho. Yeah. Agreed. Terrible decision. Awful decision. Uh, but uh, when I was in college down at the University of Utah, um, a little before that, I met uh, an Idaho woman whom I married. And then I did uh, college and uh, law school at the University of Utah. And when I graduated, she informed me that she was heading back home and I was more than welcome to join her. <laughs> and uh, I made the smart decision to do that. And uh, about 15 years ago, I moved back to Idaho. My second stint as an Idahoan and love it here. And uh, what I came back for is I was hired by the 80 County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. And so I have been doing that for just around 15 years and I love it. Uh, what motivates you to get into law? Uh, that, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I didn't have some grand experience as a child. I didn't know any lawyers, so there was nobody to talk me out of it. Yeah. That was it. But uh, I loved it. When I went to law school, you know, my intent was to you know, be some rich, powerful, fancy corporate lawyer or something like that. But once I got there, I found that I really enjoyed the criminal law classes. And uh, so that's, that's what I did. What got you interested in sort of melding law and history together? Uh, I mean, a, a lot of times, you know, historians end up going on to be lawyers, but I, I have not seen as often sort of melding the two together in the way that you have. Well, I, I have always loved history. I guess I just didn't have the guts to go all in like uh, you two. I did get a minor in history at the University of Utah, and those were always my favorite classes. 
And so it's always something that's just stuck with me. And um, so through history, one of the, you know, I do a lot of Mormon history and one of the sections that just does not have a lot is legal Mormon history. So I've written some there. And then when I came back out to Idaho, I found how much I loved it here. And so I'm kind of melding all that together, Idaho, Mormon and legal history with what I'm working on now. That's really interesting. I, I've gotten a little bit into Mormon history. We, we looked at polygamy in Utah in one of my classes last semester and sort of how it revolved around the women's movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of the, the basics, the most I have. So I definitely am interested to hear what you, you have for us because it sounds fascinating. I mean, polygamy in Utah is sort of one thing, but polygamy in, in Idaho and, and the way that lawmakers tried to get around that is, is a whole different thing. Absolutely. It went two different ways, kind of with the same result. But Idaho um, is actually very significant in the ending of polygamy. Some of the case law that came out of here influenced the prophet and president of the, of the church at the time to abandon it in the 1890s. So we first actually met when the Mormon History Association visited. And yeah, I gave a little presentation at the prison about the unlawful cohabitation and then I've actually crossed paths with you again as a juror in one of your trials. And it really was difficult for me. I had a really hard time. And so then I, I really wonder how, how does it affect you working within the child abuse and sexual assault unit? How can you continue to do that every day? Yeah, it, it can be tough, but I've been doing it for uh, quite some time. You know, I go to, to trainings where they always talk to you about um, vicarious trauma or secondary trauma, and you need to be careful. Take care of yourself. You have to have a hobby and escape. Oddly for me, mine is history. That's what I love doing and enjoying. So that's kind of a, a break from it. But, you know, I have to remember that, you know, whatever I feel when I feel down, when I have, you know, those days, it's, it's nothing compared to the victims um, right. of trauma. And so, you know, I keep doing it want to help them, want to fight a good fight. Are there any cases that you've worked on that you feel that the public should know more about? So specific cases, no. But I wish the public knew more about kind of the dynamics of the cases that I do. It's a weird world. And the dynamics are important because, you know, a woman today will say, somebody stole my car and 10 out of 10 people will believe her. But when a woman says that I have been, um, you know, sexually assaulted, all of a sudden, five out of 10 people just don't. So people don't understand a lot of the dynamics of, of abuse. People oftentimes think they know how they would act if they were in a specific situation, a traumatic experience. And you pr- really can't know that until it happens. And so I kind of wish people would just wouldn't prejudge that, would understand that people act oddly in traumatic situations and, and be uh, charitable to those explanations. I'm writing a paper right now on women in the 1950s, and there is a book about about how rape was really a between the, the black movement and the feminist movement in the 1960s was a, a, a shared side of racial injustice in the way that women, like there was actually a like lying woman myth around which lawmakers in the 1950s created these rape laws essentially to protect especially white men from these like lying women. And so we still are seeing the effects of that today and how absolutely unfortunate that is. You know, it's been 70 plus years since those laws have have 
been put in place. And, and as you said, here we are, you know, five out of 10 people believe women. And, and it's so, uh, so upsetting. Has it changed your view on, on like people and, and the city itself, like working in, in this department? So, yes. Um, one thing is, I'm just amazed at what we have here in the city. We have just incredible law enforcement, we have incredible medical facilities, incredible counselors, um, people that help children and, and those in crisis. We have amazing defense attorneys, public defenders. Um, we just have a really good system here that, that you know, I've seen and been impressed in. I think another way that this has probably changed me is I've become a more compassionate person. Uh, I try to understand where people are coming from and, and the trauma and the things that they deal with, you know, both victims and defendants. And so, you know, you probably don't imagine that becoming, you know, a prosecutor would be more compassionate, but I think it did. That's fantastic. I'm fascinated by the work and, and thankful for the work that you're doing. It is so necessary because, you know, not much has changed, unfortunately, in, in really our history. And, and, you know, there needs to be justice for the, these victims. And so I'm, I'm very thankful that you are, are uh, willing to do that. I did actually, I did have another question. As the sort of like this Me Too movement has sort of ramped up in the last, you know, five or so years, have you seen any sort of change in cases or anything like that as, as sort of the movement? I mean, I don't know if it touched Idaho necessarily as much as it may have touched other urban centers, but I'm wondering if, if you saw any, any difference sort of after that movement started. I think we're still seeing the effects of it. I, I think that maybe people are coming forward more. I hope they are. Uh, that's a good thing. However, in kind of picking juries and when you talk to people, it seems like, you know, back to that, that five out of 10, it seems like people are more dug in. Um, those that want to believe are, they do, they believe. But I think you have, sadly, a, a portion who kind of think it's a witch hunt and have dug in more on uh, their side. So I think we're still waiting and seeing. I hope it helps. Um, but the, the people that I generally work with, you know, we we believe women, we believe victims. So it hasn't really affected the professional people I work with. But I, I hope I hope people are more willing out there to to listen and to to you know really give people's experiences a a fair listen. Do you have future aspirations within the law? So um, I want to keep doing what I do. I want to be. A career prosecutor. And so I don't know if staying in the same position the rest of your life is really aspirational. I was listening to a jail phone call about a month ago. I participated in a sentencing, had a guy that I prosecuted who a lot of victims, hurt a lot of teenage girls, and he got a real big sentence. And him and his dad were talking on the phone. And one of the things they were talking about was me and how big of a loser I am because I've been a prosecutor this whole time. Can't he find a better job? And there are many people that use the prosecutor's uh, office as kind of a stepping stone. You come in and you get good trial experience. But there are a, a large portion, probably most of us, who actually want to be career prosecutors and, and do this the long haul. And so that's my plan. I don't know, again, if that's very aspirational. The one thing maybe that is, is I am working on kind of a legal history, the Idaho Tesco, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in those uh, polygamy prosecutions and that kind of thing. And so... Hopefully, you know, I'll write something that's, uh, you know, adds to uh, 
you know, the Idaho Legal Experience and is uh, something that's worth reading. Well, that's fantastic. Well, why don't we uh, get right into that? I'd love to hear what you've got to share about the test oath and everything else that was going on in the 1880s and early 1890s. I'll jump in there. But first off, again, thank you both for having me on here. It is truly an honor. There is just a real lack of Idaho history podcast. And so I get so excited when my phone, you know, has that alert that there's a new, a new episode of the wall. So I just love it. But I, I want to talk about two inmates today. I hope that's not breaking rules. Um, we do it all the time. <laughs> and so I want to talk about a father and a son. And I wonder if they're the first father and son ever to serve as a pen. That'd be a question for you guys. I don't know. And so I want to talk about inmate number 119, George C. Parkinson, and number 1B, his father, Samuel Parkinson. And so number 1B, for some reason, and you guys, again, probably know this, there's a, a number of oddly numbered people right in between 159 and 160. And so Samuel Parkinson fits in that, that weird part. So he's 1B. And I don't think they had intake papers like they do now. I hear you guys always talk about the intake papers, but they, do, they did have a register. And it's a real cool book at the, at the archives, this big leather-bound book. But it showed that S.R. Parkinson came into the prison on November 18, 1886, and he was from Bingham County. And his crime was unlawful cohabitation. He's originally from England. His occupation is listed as farmer. And he's five feet, ten and a half inches. His complexion is dark. He has gray hair and dark eyes. And so his son, George Parkinson, uh, the register shows that he was also from Bingham County. His crime is resisting an officer. He's 28 years old. He's originally from Utah. His occupation is a school teacher. He's 5'11". He has a sandy complexion light sandy hair, and has dark blue eyes. And so George uh, went to the penitentiary for resisting an officer in the latter part of 1885, and his father went for unlawful cohabitation in late 1886. And so the term unlawful cohabitation might not be familiar to everyone, um, but both this father and son duo, they went to the pen for polygamy-related crimes. And both men were Latter-day Saints who, in their view, were punished for religious beliefs where the state saw them as criminals. And so just a little background on polygamy and the Latter-day Saints. This is a murky and debated uh, by historians all the time. I mean, there are full podcasts with hundreds of episodes just on polygamy. So I'm going to be brief and I'm going to be simplistic. I hope that's okay with everyone. But Mormonism begins with Joseph Smith, and he had a vision where he says he saw God in Jesus Christ, and then he later translated the Book of Mormon. And by the early 1840s, Smith had started to marry other women in religious ceremonies. And in all, he married at least 34, 35 women. And this happened in the 1840s. And also in the 1840s, he reported that he received a revelation on the subject, and then he started expanding the practice by inviting those close to him to join. And so at his death in 1844, roughly 30 additional men and about 80 additional women had joined in the practice. And uh, Smith was murdered in 1844. And after that, the saints moved west in 1847. And so when they were out west uh, by themselves, the plural marriage system expanded to many others, not just that kind of, you know, initial circle. And so in 1852, the fact that uh, they engaged in plural marriage was finally publicly admitted. It was uh, kind of the worst kept secret in the West, but uh, they came out and said, yeah, we're doing it. 
And so with the conflicts over this practice and with the government, it really started to kind of become part of the Mormon identity. And it was part of Mormon doctrine until the practice mostly ceased in the 1890s. Now, in the 1880s, the practice of polygamy was sort of dying out anyway. The younger generation wasn't as interested in living a polygamous lifestyle. And so in Idaho, there were probably about 200 polygamists and probably right around 4,500 to 5,000 Mormons living in southeast Idaho. And kind of the history of the Mormons in Idaho is pretty interesting as well. They started coming here in the 1860s. In many cases, they believed they were moving to northern Utah. They believed that many cities like Franklin and Preston and Paris were actually northern Utah towns. And then around the same time, many people fleeing Utah and the Mormon church were also immigrating to Idaho. Uh, for example, Malad was founded by Mormon dissidents. And so in 1872, there was a new survey done establishing the 42nd parallel in the southern border of Idaho. And so because of this, many saints who believed they were in Utah now found themselves in Idaho. And this meant they needed to accustom themselves to new laws, new taxes, a new political leadership. And many were hesitant and resistant to uh, their new state in the beginning. Uh, sort of another kind of fun and sad fact was Utah actually had given the women the right to vote in 1870. Yeah. So for those two years, there were women in Franklin that could have voted. And then they woke up one day and found that they no longer had the franchise. So I'd like to find out who those women are. I would consider them the first Idaho voters. And so polygamy was illegal in the territory of Idaho. And right before we became a territory, Congress passed the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act of 1862, which uh, prohibited and criminalized polygamy. And this was largely ignored, and it really never was used. Um, there weren't really prosecutions back then. And then next came the Poland Act in 1874, which set criminal procedure in the, uh, these prosecutions. But again, it, it wasn't really used. It was used a little bit in Idaho. We'll hit on that in a minute. But uh, next came the Edmonds Act of 1882, which disfranchised polygamists, but it was only disfranchised the polygamists themselves. So you had to have two wives to not be able to vote. It, it didn't disfranchise all members of the Mormon church. But Idaho, uh, you know, we do our own thing, right? And so in Idaho, in 1884, at the 13th legislative session, the Idaho test oath was passed. And so this law made it that no Latter-day Saint, polygamist or not, living in Idaho, could run for office, teach school, serve on a jury, or vote. So this went much further than the Edmonds Act, which revoked the franchise of polygamists. Uh, this Idaho law revoked the franchise for all members of the LDS church. That's fascinating to me. Do you mind if I ask a question real quick? Absolutely. Freedom of religion is guaranteed in the Constitution. So how were lawmakers able to pass this law and not have it be deemed unconstitutional? So there was a, a Supreme Court case roughly 10 years before that, Reynolds versus United States, which said you can't prohibit religious belief, but you can prohibit certain practices, um, even if they're religiously based. So you mean the extreme example would be human sacrifice. You can't have that as part of your religion. You can believe it. <laughs> you can't practice it. And so that's how they were able to pass it. But this was fought over for years and years and years. Um, there were many test cases fought through Idaho. 
And then eventually, uh, kind of I alluded to earlier, and there was a big one, Davis v. Beeson, that made it up to the Supreme Court, which finally upheld the Idaho Testo. And what kind of scared the church was, this was only in the territory of Idaho. But with that being upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, that meant all the other territories could have passed this exact same law. Mm-hmm. That caused the president of the church to, to give some thought about polygamy. And, and there were a lot of factors. It wasn't just these... Um, coming out of Idaho, but it, it is important in the history of polygamy in the West. With the passage of the Idaho Testo, Latter-day Saints started being prosecuted for polygamy and unlawful cohabitation. And so in all, I counted 48 men who served time in Idaho Penitentiary between 1885 and 1890 for polygamy-related crimes. And, and that's a small number comparing to Utah. In Utah, there were around 800 And there were more Idaho polygamists who were convicted, but they were sent to South Dakota to serve their time there. And I'm not sure if that's because, you know, all the polygamy prosecutions filled up the pen. I don't know, but some of them got sent to South Dakota. Yeah. And so jumping into number 1B, Samuel Parkinson. He was born in 1831 in England, and his father was a coal merchant, and his business failed when some mill workers went on strike. And so in 1840, he took his family and immigrated to Australia. The family stayed there for two years and then immigrated to New Zealand in 1842. And they found there was no work in New Zealand, so they then immigrated to Chile. And Samuel spent his early teen years in South America, where he worked as a waiter, a gardener, and he interpreted English and Spanish for a local dentist. Uh, The family returned to England in 1845, and on the way, they were shipwrecked off the coast of Ireland. And when they got to England, they found that the country was very poor going through the potato famine. And he did find work with the Blackburn and Preston Railroad until 1848 when the family immigrated again, this time to America. And so Samuel was 17 years old when he came here. And they settled in St. Louis. And it was there that Samuel's mother died during a cholera epidemic in 1849. And so the following year in 1850, that's when he was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so he would have been around 19 years old. And two years later, he married Arabella Ann Chandler and then had his first son in 1853. And in 1854, uh, this family, they crossed the plains to join uh, the saints in Utah. And it was a typical crossing of uh, the plains and wagons. He had uh, you know, adventures and dealt with native people and, and those kind of things. And when he got to Salt Lake City, he worked as a laborer and soon after had a set of twins. And like a lot of people on the frontier, he just moved from job to job doing what he could to feed his family. And it was at that time, prisoner number 119, George, uh, came into his life. Uh, George Parkinson was born on July 18, 1857. And so in 1860, Samuel and his small family, they moved to Idaho uh, with a dozen other families. And they settled Franklin. Uh, However, it was Franklin, Utah until 1870. Kind of interesting, during that same time, there was kind of flux and where are we really? Franklin actually had a representative in both the Idaho and the Utah legislature for a time. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. Interesting. It ultimately, you know, turned out they were in Idaho. And, and while they were up there in Franklin, they did a lot of work. He built houses. He helped dig irrigation ditches. And Franklin really turned into a legitimate settlement. And he was very successful. He kept building up his businesses and farms. And eventually, he built a sawmill. 
and uh, had supply teams that helped on the railroad. And he was a, a true believer in his religion, and that meant polygamy as well. Family histories and family lore say that when he was courting Arabella, his first wife, he told her, quote, you know, I know that's true, that church. And if I join it, I'm going to join it full hand or none. And that means if there ever comes a time, I think I should take another wife, I'm going to do it. So now you make up your mind because that's what I'm going to do. Close quote. And in 1866, he marries his second and third wife, a pair of sisters. He married Charlotte and Maria, and they were both 17, and he was 35. So I hear some sighs from you guys, <laughs> and I agree. Um, yeah. Yep, for many reasons. Um, but in all, uh, with these three wives, he ended up having 32 children. Oh, that's so many children. That is 32 uh. with three wives? With three wives. And they're ready, Sky. Here comes, Sky. Here comes some more. Uh, his last child was born when he was 63 years old. Oh, man. That's... Uh, polygamy should be studied from women's perspective more often. I can't... <laughs> I can't deal with it. <laughs> and it should. It absolutely should because... So I'm glad you bring that up because publicly they put on a brave face and this mm -hmm. is, and you know, it's, it's a fantastic thing. But then when you read women's journals of the time period, it's a lot of heartache and right. not something they love. Yeah. And, and definitely I just want to plug Laurel Thatchell Ulrich's uh, House Full of Females, just one of the best books. And, and even though it doesn't get into like, you know, what public figures were thinking about polygamy, it definitely gets into a, a little bit of, of, because it's not just that like women went along with it just because like there were kind of certain reasons and and Ulrich really goes into that but because I I am a, a member of of the LDS church myself and so sort of growing up you hear these stories of polygamy and and that's always been a curiosity to me and I've heard my parents joke before of like what would you do if polygamy came back and my dad's like I can only handle one woman like what are you talking about but I just that always would get me thinking of how would I deal with that like how how did any woman deal with that? So I just, again, and you don't have answers for this. This is just my tangent, but I just, oh, it's so fascinating to me and often wildly upsetting. Have you well, watched I, any of the shows that are currently on like TLC about sister wives and things like that? I, I used to watch uh, the one, they were in Utah and then they had to move to Nevada. I don't remember what that one was called. Uh, I think it was just sister wives. Uh, and that was also, it was still deeply upsetting. It's just, it's it's tough to watch. Yeah, I, I found it interesting that it was like trying to renormalize this old practice. I, yeah, I've... and and polygamy has been decriminalized, hasn't it, in Utah? Or it's not a felony anymore. It's been decriminalized in in Utah. In Idaho, it's a misdemeanor. It, and Sky, I agree with you a hundred percent on I, I, everything you said. Um, Laurel's book is fantastic, and I I have a hard time dealing with my people's past as well. I'm in the same boat as you. It's, it's a troubling part of my history that, that I have trouble with too. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right, let's hear more. I'm, I'm, I'm riveted. This is good stuff. So in November of 1874, the Oneida County Grand Jury did indict some polygamists. And this really scared uh, Samuel. So he went on the Mormon underground. And this was basically when polygamists went into hiding. And so in 1875, he would hide in his shed or under the bed, 
And there are actually secret rooms built into each of his wife's homes during this time. And uh, they would kind of swap, right? Um, you would go stay at a friend's house, friend would stay at your house so that you wouldn't be caught. And so he would stay from, you know, stay at different friends' homes from Franklin all the way down to Salt Lake City. But in 1876, he was caught and it went to trial. And uh, he, like all the polygamists that were indicted in Idaho in those few years, he was acquitted because polygamy was very hard to prove. So for the crime of polygamy, you had to prove an actual second marriage. And so those were very tough because, you know, they controlled the evidence. The wife wouldn't testify, the second wife. And, and so what that actually led to was Congress coming up with the new crime of unlawful cohabitation. And so what that was is you no longer had to prove a second marriage. You just had to prove that the individual cohabitated with a woman who was not his first or lawful wife. And so with the passage of that, they could actually convict polygamists. And that's another question I had, because I, I always assumed, and I don't know if I read this somewhere or if I just assumed it, but a lot of times they couldn't get them necessarily on polygamy as well, because a lot of the marriages were like more spiritually based, like they weren't like legal marriages, right? Or were, did, they, did they actually legally marry? No, um, you, you couldn't legally marry anyone. Right. But okay. So they did have ceremonies. Right. But, you know, those records were kept by the church okay. and not public and you couldn't get them. Right. And so right. that evidence okay. Gotcha. And so now I'm going to move on to inmate number 119, George C. Parkinson. Uh, and so as we heard, he was born in 1857 and moved to Idaho when he was three. And because his father did so well financially, he was actually able to go to Brigham Young College in Logan, Utah, where he graduated in 1880. And I believe that's now Utah State University. Aggies all the way. <laughs> and so in 1881, he went on a proselytizing mission to the Southern States for a year and then to England for a year and a half. And he returned to Idaho in 1883 and moved to Oxford, Idaho, where he taught school. And in 1884, he was elected county superintendent of schools as a Republican. And this is somewhat strange as Mormons were generally Democrats. And that's honestly what really caused sort of the problems for the saints in Idaho. It wasn't so much that they were polygamists, it was that they would block vote as Democrats. And so the Republicans didn't like them because they would block vote. And the non-LDS Democrats didn't like them because they would block vote and take all the positions. And so they were very unpopular. And so the authors of the Testo, they really were most concerned with um, breaking up that block. Polygamy was just kind of a, a second thing they wanted to do. And so in 1885, as polygamists were being prosecuted for polygamy and unlawful cohabitation, there were raids for times that the marshals would come into town to hunt polygamists. And it kind of turned into sort of a game where the Mormons would have teenage boys assigned to watch for the marshals at the edge of town. And when they saw them, they would sound the alarm. And so during this time, George Parkinson helped hide a polygamist. And so he was charged with resisting an officer. A newspaper reported on his crime back then. And it said, quote, a warrant was issued by U.S. Commissioner House of Oxford for the arrest of Rufus Walker on the charge of polygamy. The warrant was placed in the hands of Under Sheriff Bassett who found his man in the cellar of the co-op store in Oxford when he arrested him and brought him to this city to await the convening of the court when he will have his examination. It was charged that George C. Parkinson, superintendent of the co-op, had his walker, 
whereupon a warrant was sworn out and he was arrested on the charge of hindering an officer and aiding and abetting an escape. And so the Parkinson family saw this very differently. Parkinson family history claimed that he didn't know someone was hiding in his store. But Fred uh, Du Bois, the federal marshal, and he uh, later became uh, a senator for Idaho. And he wrote a book about his early days in Idaho, uh, The Making of a State. And he actually brought up George Parkinson's arrest. And so this is how Fred Du Bois says it. There were some Mormons, not many, who stood high in the church who were not polygamists. One of these was George C. Parkinson of Oxford. He ran the Zion Cooperative Mercantile Store there and was a successful businessman. While I was at Oxford during 85 with a number of deputies, a Mormon came in one morning before any of us were up. He stated to a number of people that he was tired of hiding out and had come in to deliver himself to the marshal. He was evidently persuaded not to do this, for when we learned what had taken place, he could not be found. We felt that he was still in the village, and the deputies searched every likely place of hiding. He was found in the cellar of Parkinson's store behind a lot of boxes, quietly eating a cold lunch of cheese, crackers, and sardines, which evidently had been furnished by the store. Harry Bennett looked over the U.S. statutes and found that Parkinson could be indicted for interfering with the United States officers in the discharge of their duties. A warrant was sworn out for Parkinson, and he was promptly arrested. And so he was actually tried twice. The first trial ended in a hung jury, but he was convicted in the second trial. And in hindsight, it would have been better for him that he lost the first trial, uh, because by the time the second trial came along, the judge had changed. And he was now in front of Judge James Buchanan Hayes, who was much harsher than his predecessor. And Hayes was so harsh that the day of sentencing, where Parkinson was sentenced, it became known as Black Saturday in southeastern Idaho. And so all the polygamists that were convicted in the fall term of 1885, they were all sentenced on the same day, Saturday, November 7th, 1885, or Black Saturday. Uh, and he sentenced seven men that day, six for unlawful cohabitation, and then George Parkinson for resisting an officer. And he gave every man there the opportunity to get a reduced sentence if they would promise to follow the law in the future. And no one took him up on his offer. Mm. Um, a bishop in the term before had accepted the offer in the spring term, and he was removed as bishop. So not many people were gonna, gonna accept that uh, duel to promise to not be polygamist in the future. And so the judge um, spoke with him before he pronounced sentence. And so, Anthony, do you want to play the part of George Parkinson and I'll be the judge? Yeah, I'd love to. All right. So Judge Hayes, Mr. George C. Parkinson, you have been found guilty of resisting an officer of this court, of obstructing justice by secreting a fugitive from an officer of this court. What have you to say why the sentence of the court should not now be pronounced upon you? Nothing more than to repeat what I have said. I am not guilty of the crime with which I am charged. That is all. I've been informed that you've been advising, since this trial, others who have been convicted to make no promise of obedience to the law. Is that information correct, or have I been misinformed? I have given no direct advice that I know of. In general conversation, I have expressed my views as to how I would feel if brought up here charged with an offense under the law, which is part of my religion. I desire that you make no evasive answer. I have been informed that you have advised some of the gentlemen who have been convicted of illegal cohabitation and who now stand with you before the court to make no promise of future obedience to the law. But on the other hand, you have advised them to state that they would not obey the law. Have you so advised them? 
counseled or in any manner sought to persuade them to do so? No, sir. I'm glad to hear that I have been misinformed. And so he then gave um, Parkinson a big lecture before sentencing him. And, th and this is all uh, from transcripts that were published back then. But Mr. Parkinson, your case is different from the others. You were convicted of having sought to resist an officer in serving the process of this court. You plead not guilty, but the evidence was clear and sufficient against you. I ask you now if in the future you will desist from such conduct and devote your attention to minding your own business. I could not say what I will do in the future. I have been a law-abiding citizen thus far. I shall judge the future by what you have done in the past. I find that in the past you have sought to obstruct the ends of justice. In the past I find that you have sought to shield those who are criminal. You have sought to prevent the officers of our government from serving the process of the court upon them. Courts must protect themselves and they will. I am sorry that a man of your intelligence should start wrong. The course of crime is always downward. Were you in the courtroom the other day when the duty devolved upon me of sentencing various robbers and thieves? I was. Then you might have learned a lesson that should have been profitable to you. Those men, bad as they are, were not always such. Their crimes were small at first. You have been convicted of a crime that is light compared with theirs. But you have been found guilty of secreting a criminal, of obstructing the course of justice, and yet you tell me you have no promise to make as to the future? I had hoped that you, at least, would promise to be a good citizen in the future. The sentence of the court is that you, George C. Parkinson, be imprisoned in the territorial prison of the Territory of Idaho for the period of 12 months. I give this long period for the purpose of teaching you and others that resistance to the laws of our country cannot be permitted. It is further adjudged that you pay a fine of $300 and in addition thereto, the cost of your prosecution taxed at $100. You may sit down. And so at that point, he then uh, was sent off to the territorial prison. And so, Anthony and Skye, I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings, but earlier that year, a Utah newspaper did not have very nice things to say about the Idaho pen. So I apologize in advance. But uh, this comes from the Salt Lake Herald, May 21st of 1885. Official barbarity. Exceedingly ugly rumors come from Idaho regarding the treatment of prisoners at the penitentiary. It is said that the Idaho pen is even viler as a place for hurting men than the miserable old mud corral near this city where Marshall Ireland confines his prisoners. And doubtful as it may seem, Marshall Du Bois of Idaho and his warden and deputies are as much more cruel-hearted to prisoners than Ireland and his underlinings as the Idaho penitentiary is worse than that of Utah. It is said in the Boise pen, the prisoners are kept in close to almost solitary confinement for 23 out of 24 hours, only one hour a day being allowed a man for exercise, light, and fresh air. The cells are damp and dark, and the food is by no means what it should be, considering that the marshals charges the government a dollar a meal for it. The stories that reach us from our northern neighbor may be overdrawn, but the chances are that only the truth has been told, and it is doubtful if all the facts are allowed to get out. Government should instruct its prison officials that in this age of humanity, and no one of barbarism and brutality. Now, luckily, George Parkinson actually wrote letters from the pen, and so we learned that it was not a miserable place. It actually sounds kind of fun. Um, and so I'll read part of uh, a letter that he sent back to his friends and family at home. We are all enjoying excellent health, 
and are in no way depressed in spirit, notwithstanding it grieves us to know that the ones whom we would bless and do good to are fast sealing their own doom by attempting to thwart the purposes of the Almighty. We are treated with kindness and equity by the warden, Mr. J. N. Palmerton, and from what I can learn, our accommodations are no worse than those of our neighboring prisoners. I am now rooming with Brother J. M. Phelps of Montpelier, and we all get along. We have about two hours exercise in the large yard each day, the rest of the time being spent in reading, writing, conversation, and sometimes working a little at whatever we can find to do for our pastime. There are six of us in prison. Brother Blackburn of Rexburg is working in the shoemaker's bench. Brother Phelps attends the cow. A. Lethem looks after the hogs. A. Bjorn sweeps the floor. A. Peck has been cutting stone, and I go to town or chore a little on the outside enclosure when asked. We consider this all optional on our part and regard it as conducive to health and good feeling. Our food is common, two meals a day. Our beds are composed of straw mattresses and two pairs of blankets. The cell room is generally warm and comfortable. All loud talking is stopped by 7 p.m. and lights are put out by 9 when all retire to bed. We are permitted to write twice each month and receive mail anytime, all correspondence being inspected by the warden. So he made it not sound that bad. And other inmates who wrote uh, during that time shared the same view. So another inmate who was serving time for unlawful cohabitation was A.L. Blackburn. He's uh, inmate number 122. And he wrote friends and family back home and had the same views. Here's what he wrote. There are about 70 prisoners here at present, including some eight nationalities. We are allowed two hours outdoor exercise every day, which is usually spent in walking around the enclosure, foot racing, pitching horse shows, swinging clubs, playing baseball, etc. Quite a number of the prisoners while in their cells spend their time in different kinds of handicrafts, such as making fancy hair bridles, whips, etc. Others in making fancy card baskets, picture frames, miniature river boats, ladywork boxes, etc. Notably among this class is C. Young, whose work is pronounced by competent judges to be the best they have ever seen of the kind. Others again spend their time in reading, writing, studying. Notably among those are brothers J. M. Phelps and George C. Parkinson, who are making strenuous efforts to master the Spanish language. Since coming here has been all that could be expected under the circumstances. Uh, the warden, Mr. Richards, is a gentleman in every sense of the word. He has treated us with uniform kindness and has done all in his power to make our sojourn here as pleasant as possible, consistent with the rules of the institution, as has also Mr. Palmer, the assistant warden. The guards are also very kind and gentlemanly in the performance of their duty. Everything about the place is clean, neat, and orderly. Our food, of which we get two meals per day, is served in our cells and is clean and wholesome, though not always as palpable as we could desire. Strict discipline is maintained here, though tampered with uniform kindness. And then finally, uh, another third inmate, Isaac B. Nash, number 126, he also wrote, and he talked about uh, George Parkinson in his letter. And just a portion of his letter says, the inmates of the establishment study a good deal, some more than others. Some study reading, writing, and arithmetic, grammar, and some study the Spanish language. George C. Parkinson is one of the last mentioned. He is studying all he can, and I think he will learn the language very soon. Uh, and so we also know that he passed on, he had two Spanish books, he passed that on to a different polygamous inmate who came in later on. So it seems like they spent their time well there. And so while George was in prison, uh, his father was arrested while hiding out in Utah. He was caught by marshals uh, there, and he was brought back to Idaho to stand trial. 
and he was convicted in October 1886 and sentenced on November 17, 1886. And so I wanted to really talk about him, one, just the family connection between the two, but he is one of two polygamists that kept a journal while at the Idaho Penitentiary. And so we have two Idaho prison journals from these guys. And then there's actually a third journal of an Idaho Mormon polygamist that he was sent to South Dakota to serve his time. I wanted to share some of the things from uh, Samuel's journal while he was in prison, because I, I find it fascinating. But I'll start by reading his version of his sentencing. And he wasn't the best writer. Um, I don't know what schooling he had, so it's, it's a little rough. But um, the 17th of November, 1886, I start to Blackfoot today to receive sentence for living with my wives. I reach Blackfoot at 12 o'clock. I appear before the court at Blackfoot to receive sentence, and I was sentenced to six months imprisonment and $300 fine and no cost. And sentence to commence today at 12 o'clock, and I was handed over to the marshal, and he said I could report myself every day, and it would be all right with him. I told him I would do so. And so off the bat, you know, he's treated pretty well and trusted. He's, he's allowed to just kind of hang around town and watch court and uh, just check in every day with the marshal. And then also, uh, I don't have the quote here, but the judge also said he would not be forced to shave his beard when he got to the prison due to his age. So he was allowed to have a, a beard while in prison. So moving on. So the 23rd of November, I am still waiting for the train and I sent $20 to my wife. It is now 12 o'clock and the prisoners are at the hotel waiting for the train to go to Pocatello. I went to Pocatello. I had a very bad headache. And then the next day, November 24th, I am now in the penitentiary and I have to tend all the fires and keep the stoves clean. And so as you read his whole journal, you see that he was pretty trusted. Um, he started out, you know, tending fires and then had other jobs. He was in charge of caring for the pigs. Um, near the end, he, he ended up being in charge of the laundry but he was allowed to leave um, the prison at times to go get produce or uh, whatever he needed. And so he was, he was pretty trusted uh, in the prison. On Christmas, he wrote that the prisoners played baseball and sang songs. It appears they got to get a little more extra rec time and got to stay up a little later than usual. Uh, he wrote, and they was play ball from half past eight o'clock until half past one o'clock and then had dinner. And at half past four o'clock, the prison commenced singing and sung songs until eight o'clock at night. His journal also includes a joke or two. Absolutely a dad joke, but um, here's what he wrote. I attended to the pigs and went for a sack of apples. And when I came back, I knock at the door and I had to give three trustees a pair apiece to let me in their private door. So you see, we are glad to get in the penitentiary sometimes. <laughs> it's a pretty bad dad joke. <laughs> He'd also note times of excitement in the pen as well. In January of 1887, there was an escape. And so he writes, Monday the 17th, there was 12 men selected to go and work on the road. And one man named Patrick Ford tore away. I wonder if he meant ran away. And there was over 50 men hunting him all day, but did not find him. Tuesday the 18th, they have been hunting the last man all night and all day. Wednesday the 19th. They have been hunting the last man all night and found and brought to the penitentiary at five o'clock in the evening. And then on the 20th, they put the runaway man into dark cells this morning, and there's two other men in the dark cells, all on bread and water. And he, he kind of kept us up to what was happening. When Ford was finally let out of the dark cells, he noted, 
quote, the man Ford who was in the dark cells was let out this morning and an Oregon boot was put on. And that was January 31st. And so he served about two weeks in the dark cells. And so an Oregon boot is kind of the ball and chain. Is that right? It's a big, heavy piece of iron, you know, that looks like a boot strapped to your ankle. Yeah. <laughs> we have one on display at the old pen in our little mm-hmm. timeline room. Nice. It's uh-huh. nice. And so something else that I found really neat about his journal is he named the other 58 prisoners in the penitentiary with him. And he also gave their inmate numbers. And so the lowest number on his list were prisoners number two and inmate number three, uh, Moroni Hicks and Jose Moya. And they were both there for murder in the second degree. So whoever uh, inmate number one was, was out by then. Two and three were still there. And then I think my favorite part of the prison journal is the very end where he was actually given a tour of the city by the warden. Kind of a going away present party, I don't know. But May 2nd, 1887. The warden took me downtown and took me through the Capitol building and courthouse and college. And I thought these buildings were a great to the place. And I thank the warden for his kindness. And I left at 5.30 a.m. on stage, took supper at CUNA, and then took the OS line to Pocatello. And then the following day, on uh, May 3rd, I arrived home 12 o'clock and found the family all well. Wow. That's crazy. And so, Another kind of interesting thing about these Mormon prisoners is when they were released, they were treated similarly to a returning missionary. So if anybody knows any um, saints who come home from their missions, you know, it's, it's exciting. There's some fanfare and then you make a report to your ward. Um, they would do the same things back then. Uh, they were treated uh, kind of like missionaries. Hmm. Samuel went back to his family, including all his wives. Uh, he ended up having one more child with a polygamist wife after being released from prison. So he was still breaking the law. And later in life, he would raise sheep and he kept a store. And he was a member of a bishopric uh, when he went to prison. And that continued uh, when he got back to 1908. I'm sorry, what's a bishopric? Oh, thank you. So, um, <laughs> Didn't even think about the explanation. Just made sense to me. <laughs> so Mormon congregations are called wards, and wards are led by three men called a bishopric. So you have a bishop who's in charge, and then he ha- you have his two counselors. Oh. So he was in one of the three highest ecclesiastical positions in his congregation. And so his death is kind of timely. We're all recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic and our stay-at-home order. He died on May 23rd, 1919, at the age of 88, during the Spanish flu epidemic. And he died of the Spanish flu. So George, when he got out of prison, he returned home uh, as well. And he got into the produce business and then started raising cattle and sheep. And in 1887, he was made the stake president of the Oneida State. And so that's even higher up than a bishop. So these congregations would make up, so you'd have 10 congregations or wards, they would be in a stake. And so the stake president was the person over all those congregations or wards. And especially back then, back then there were only five or six stakes in Idaho. So he, you know, just a few years removed from prison was actually named, uh, you know, one of the five, six um, highest ranking ecclesiastical leaders of the church in Idaho. And uh, he successfully operated lots of stores and mercantiles in the area, and he was always financially comfortable. And he continued to be involved in the Republican Party 
and after Mormons were allowed to vote again and serve in office, he was elected to the state Senate. However, he had some skeletons in his closet, a secret crime that was never found out. <laughs> so in 1890, when the president of the LDS Church issued his manifesto officially ending polygamy, some members would continue to secretly enter into plural marriage. And so the LDS Church had to issue a second manifesto in 1904, basically saying, look, guys, we're serious. Knock it off. And they actually started excommunicating people who would enter uh, into those secret post-manifesto polygamy marriages. Well, what the record shows is that George Parkinson was one of the people who entered into a post-manifesto polygamist marriage. He married a second wife in 1902. And so it was never found out by the authorities. So he was never prosecuted or returned to the penitentiary, but it's, uh, it's in the historical record. And so that is the story of inmates number 19 and number 1B, father and son, George and Samuel Parkinson. That is so interesting about George in the fact that he took a wife after, like, I, th- I feel like it would have been one thing if he had already been involved in polygamy before the manifesto, because it's like, well, I sort of was already in it. Like, one more wife isn't that big of a deal. But it's fascinating that it's even after the second one that he then takes a second wife. That's interesting. Yeah. Fascinated it, by that. It's, it's weird that he waited so long. He lived most of his life not being a polygamist and then joined at the very end. So once it was found out, he didn't get excommunicated? It never really mm. has been found out. Hmm. Uh, Until it, now. Until now. Uh, not me. Another researcher <laughs> this years ago. But uh, but yeah, he, he was... Uh, he was a post-manifesto polygamist. Huh. Fascinating. That is fascinating. You did such a good job of tying all of this together. I, those journals of those early days, it's our only real resource of what the territorial prison was like, like mm-hmm. what day-to-day was like, are those journals. So, man. Do, you, do you guys have any early journals from prison inmates? Just those ones. Just the oh, ones from, from these guys, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. So Samuel, he left the same month that the first female inmate came in and I like even though it's fair that he got out when he did I just like wish he'd been there for just like a little bit longer because then we would have had likely a record I mean if he's journaling the the most minute of details I imagine a woman coming into the prison would have been uh, just like news oh man dang it that would have been so cool do we have much between those guys and Patrick Murphy no, not really. It's... These might be the earliest. Oh, that's yeah. cool. I sent you copies years ago. You did. Yeah, yeah. They're so fascinating. And the work that went into those and the ones that are from like South Dakota as well. I think you sent me both sets okay. or a couple writings from South Dakota. Anyway, they're so fascinating. And it's really, it's like our only look at, at the prison other than like Warden's daily logs from the 1890s. Mm-hmm. I think it's the earliest first-hand primary source documents that come out of the 1880s. So. That's cool. Have you um, parsed out the stories of most of the, the polygamist inmates, or are these sort of the two guys that you've really focused on? So luckily we just had a lot on these guys. I'm starting to hit all 48, I'm trying to figure out what I can, find pictures of all of them, yeah. anything I can. I mean, I'm hoping to find another prison record, you know, just – that one of these guys has a journal somewhere and maybe they mentioned it. I mean, we have other writings 
And what I'll do is I'll package up everything I have because I've found some more stuff since then. Not like full-blown journals, but I have a person's like personal history that he wrote while he was at the pen. I found a couple more letters written from the pen by these guys. But yeah, I'm digging in and, and I'm going to yeah, find everything I can on all of them. Hmm. And hope is, yeah, the hope is, you know, there's a journal out there that has prison stuff in it. Yeah. A good thing Mormons are so good at journaling. It's like food storage and journaling is like what Mormons do best. Well, yeah, the two, <laughs> I mean, the two journals that I have given you guys, they're both housed at the church history library. Mm. And so, yeah, thank goodness for that. <laughs> That's really cool work you're doing. Not as cool as the work you two are doing. I'm loving this podcast, I do. Well, thank you so much for listening. It really, I, every time someone says they listen and like it, I'm like so shocked where I just... It, I like doing it just because I'm like, this detail is so cool. And I just assume like no one else cares. So thank you for listening and um, and now contributing. I'm the nerd that loves that detail. Well, anything else that you want to... I mean, this has been... I've been so fascinated this whole time. This has been a, an awesome Stool Pigeon Saturday we've got going. Anything else you want to add? No. I just really enjoyed it. Thank you. If ever there's another thing I could do or whatever, I'd love to come on again or, or help out in any way I can. Yeah. When this all clears up, hopefully we can actually be in the same room together and, you know, talk, <laughs> talk through this. Maybe Sky will be on vacation and we'll, we'll be able to sit down and thank you so much, John. This has yeah, really been enlightening. Been like, awesome. Yeah. You share so much with us. That thank you. so incredibly done. It's, it's weird you're thanking me because, again, I, I love to do thank you for letting me. I mean, I you should. Like... My teenage daughter, I was like, I was like, all right, Ames, I, I put myself out there. I, I emailed them. We'll see. And uh, I told her, look, it worked. It worked. They're going to have me on. <laughs> I, I feel like you have so little to thank us for. Again, I just feel like Anthony and I are just like, just telling each other the stories that we every day at work when we'd find the details and be like oh my gosh I found this thing and that's so cool and and we're honored that anyone is listening and that people are caring and are interested in 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 uh being on the show and sharing their awesome information with us and you know that's that's the whole goal is we don't want to just be the ones telling everyone Idaho history this this is a history that belongs to all of us and so we are so glad to have you on um, and share your expertise and the things that you've learned about Idaho because Idaho is so rich with history and that's what I try to tell people in Texas who like think that Idaho is not a real place is like it's so fascinating it's so rich in history and thank you so much for adding to that oh thank you again but I, I I loved it all right, John. Well, we always like to end with a little catchphrase. Uh, if I said, do your own time, how would you respond? I'd say, do your own number. Yes. yes. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you again. Take yes. Care. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.